As Christians, we confess our belief in a triune God, meaning that we believe in one God who is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each person in the Godhead is necessary for our salvation. In other words, if we don't have a triune God, we cannot be saved. People have wrestled with understanding the Trinity for a long time. The church has, has produced creeds to help us summarize the triune God. And there are three ecumenical creeds, meaning that any Christian church, regardless of denomination, should be able to agree on these three creeds. The Roots of the Apostles' Creed goes back to the early 3rd century. Long before any Lutheran, Baptist, Catholic, Orthodox, Presbyterian, Methodist, or any other denominational tag was ever used. It was one church, and it still is one church today. Those made up of those who believe in Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each week we as a body confess one of these creeds usually either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. We include them in our worship service because they provide a good summary of the content of our faith. That's why they begin with the phrase, I believe. So if someone were to ask you, what do you believe about God? Or maybe, what God do you believe in? You've got a pretty good start summarizing the triune God of Scripture with these creeds. God the Father is a creator maker of heaven and earth. God the Son, Jesus, is the Redeemer, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead, and buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Everything about Jesus here is about his work of redeeming sinners. And then there's the third person, God the Holy Spirit. And he's kind of the wild card, isn't he? We don't really know too much about the Holy Spirit. We have the creeds, and they are to keep us in the understanding of this is what the Holy, who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. But we treat him as a wild card. It's become synonymous with exciting or emotional or enthusiastic or moving or loud or emotional. That's how you would define the Spirit's working in a church service. You would walk out and you'd say, boy, I really felt the Spirit moving in, in church this morning. Maybe if there were a lot of loud amens shouted from the pews. But if that's what determines Spirit-filled or Spirit-led worship, I don't know that I have ever heard any one of you shout out amen while I've been preaching. So if that were the measurement of whether or not these sermons or these services are spirit-led, we have yet to have a spirit-led service, and we're in trouble. But thankfully, and praise God, that isn't what determines a spirit-led worship service. The spirit is more than just enthusiasm, more than just excitement, and more than just emotion. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15, starting with verse 26 and reading through 16.4. As we look at what the Spirit does and why he's so crucial for us as believers. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 26. Again, I'll invite you to stand out of respect to God's word if you are able. Reading in Jesus' name. When the Helper comes, 
whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth here this morning. Help us to see Jesus today. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what is it that the Holy Spirit does? Let me start by saying he is not an excuse to not study Scripture. There are those who wait for the Spirit thinking that preparing something ahead of time prohibits the Spirit from working. That I, I don't need to study this passage of Scripture because I'm just going to let the Spirit move me. That's not how the Spirit works. That's not what the Spirit does. The two aren't mutually exclusive. The Spirit isn't an emotion that we conjure up. He isn't warm fuzzies that we feel at times. The Spirit isn't an excuse to ever leave Scripture either. The Spirit will never contradict Scripture. Some mistakenly use and abuse the Spirit as an excuse to leave all aspects of Scripture that might quote-unquote tie you down. And they would say something like this, for instance, I know that this is what Scripture says, but the Spirit's leading me to do this. I really feel the Spirit pushing me to do this instead. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. That's not how he works. John records for us the words of Jesus on this subject in the upper room, the night that he was betrayed. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit here as the helper or the counselor, the spirit of truth, the comforter, the advocate or intercessor throughout his discourse. And here in verse 26, he refers to him as the helper or the comforter, the counselor. He says that when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Here we see the primary work of the spirit. What does Jesus say? The spirit testifies about me. So spirit-led worship or spirit-filled worship can be defined as worship that testifies of Christ that makes Christ known and what he has done. Worship that points to Jesus. And if Christ is making himself known through his word during the worship service, then it is by definition spirit-filled. And you don't even have to shout amen to make it so. So you can wipe your brow and you don't have to worry about shouting that out today. But to whom does the Holy Spirit testify about Jesus? John summarizes it in chapter 16, verse 8. It says, And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The world. The Holy Spirit is sending out the message of Scripture, of God's Word, of who Jesus is to the world. Georg Sperdra, one of the founders of the Lutheran Free Church, a predecessor to the AFLC, in one of his devotionals based on this verse, he defines the world as this. 
He says the world is all those sinful people separated from God who walk in view of visible and shameful things without perceiving the things that make for peace. In other words, this world is everyone who doesn't know who Christ is. Everyone who is separated from Christ, who knows nothing of the peace of Christ, the peace that Christ came to accomplish and came to give. This world is those, are those who know nothing of the salvation that Christ has come to bring. And to these people, to all people, the Spirit testifies of Jesus and everything that he has done to save us. There is no prerequisite for the Spirit testifying of Christ. You don't have to prepare yourself in a certain way. The Spirit testifies of Christ to the world. Sinners who have no care of God at the time. The Spirit also testifies of Christ to believers. There's something else that the Spirit does. He causes believers to testify of Jesus too. In verse 26, Jesus mentions that he is going to send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, that these believers, these disciples, will also testify. That they will also bear witness of who Jesus is. This is part of the work that the Spirit does in believers' lives. Not just ministers or deacons, not just the disciples, but every believer's. Every believer. Yes, even the quote-unquote regular Christians that means the Spirit causes you, too, to testify of Jesus. The Spirit's role isn't to separate classes, or maybe we like to view them as castes of Christians. From There's the Spirit-filled Christians, and they usually sit over there. Maybe they sit up towards the front. Then there's the regular Christians, everyone else like regular people like you and me. And then there's those Spirit-less Christians, and we don't talk about them. But there is no difference between Christians. There is one church. We all are the bride of Christ. If you are a Christian, then you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who has made Christ known to you. And the Holy Spirit is the one who continues to point you to Jesus. Because the Spirit testifies of Jesus. And the Spirit causes you and all believers also to testify of Jesus. Sverdrup ends his devotional on John 16, 8 with this application. He says, if we are to be the congregation of Christ, which is the home and the instrument of God's Spirit, meaning that God's Spirit dwells in believers, God's Spirit dwells in you, then it must be our calling and our task to be the Spirit's means of spreading the gospel over the whole world so that souls may be drawn out of the perdition of the world into the blessed fellowship of God and our Savior, meaning that as we are believers in Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells and abides in us, then it must mean that the Spirit uses you and me to spread his gospel message to the world, to all of those who don't know who Jesus is, those in our sphere, spheres of influence. The Spirit uses you and me to spread God's word, to make Jesus known to others. The Spirit testifies of Christ and causes us to bear witness of Jesus for the purpose of calling souls out of death, out of spiritual death and into life, into fellowship with God and fellowship with our Savior. The question comes, are we? Or have we become complacent with where we're at? 
Too often than not, we become complacent. And we all have our individual reasons for it. But one of the reasons is that it's easier not to do it. And it's even safer not to do it. Because those who testify of Jesus face opposition. And this is what Jesus tells his disciples here in chapter 16 and earlier in chapter 15. The unfortunate reality is that men love the darkness rather than the light. So Jesus warns his disciples of this in John chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. He says, These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Jesus tells his disciples here that the world, those souls who still walk in view of visible and shameful things, who have no understanding of who God is, who don't know the things of Christ, these souls who know neither the Father nor Jesus will oppose them and will oppose the Spirit's work. These disciples would be kicked out of the synagogue. And we might think, so what? And if that's your thought, you don't realize, we don't realize the world in which these disciples lived in. They lived in a Jewish land. Being excommunicated from the synagogue didn't just mean being kicked out of the place of worship. It meant being labeled as a religious outcast, and not only that, but a traitor to the nation. And we don't view traitors to our nations favorably, do we? They didn't either. But it gets worse. In verse 2, Jesus says that people will even kill them, all in the name of God, all in the name of worshiping their God. They'll think they're doing God a service or a favor by eliminating these disciples, by silencing their message. Saul fit this profile perfectly, didn't he? He himself was a zealot, a Pharisee, a Pharisee, a Jew of all Jews. These are his words from Acts 26. He says, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many saints in prisons, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Saul was adamant about ridding the world of this Christian witness, ridding the world of this name of Jesus Christ and anyone who spoke of him. They did this out of fervor for God. Or so he thought. Until he himself came to know who Jesus was. And Jesus revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus. Jesus said that people will do these things because they have not known the Father. And they have not known him. They thought they were offering service or worship to God, but in reality, they didn't know him at all. They didn't know the love that God had for the world. And they refused to believe that God would send his son in the flesh to dwell among them in Jesus Christ. They refused to believe the one whom the Father had sent. As Jesus revealed the Father to them. And they didn't know the Father or the Son. They didn't know his love. They didn't know his grace. And there are still plenty of people today who still don't know the Father who still don't know the Son. And this world continues to love darkness. 
It continues to love sin. It continues to hate and to oppose God. And in the name of whatever God they hold to, be it progress, be it tolerance, relevance, or success, or whatever other God they hold to, they oppose to the word of truth. And they oppose this testimony of the Spirit. They refuse to believe in Jesus. And because of that, they hate believers and anyone who testifies of this truth, of the one universal truth found in Jesus Christ. That opposition is nothing new. It's gone on for thousands of years. The world hates believers because the world hates Christ. The world hates Christ because it doesn't know him at all. The world hates God because it doesn't know his love for them. It's sad, really, isn't it? And as believers, doesn't it break your heart that there are people who refuse to acknowledge God's love for them, that this world opposes the Spirit's testimony, all because it doesn't know the great and glorious and beautiful, gracious, loving Father that we have who sent his Son, Jesus, to save us from all our sins. The world opposes the Spirit's testimony because it does not know God. How would you receive this message if you were one of the disciples there in the upper room? Jesus is getting ready to leave, and this is his pep talk, so to speak. By the way, I'm sending you a helper. Don't worry about that. And he's going to come to you. He will. I'm going to send him, and the Father will send him as well. And when he comes, he will lead you into all truth. But the world's going to hate you. Boy, is the world going to hate you. And it's going to get so bad that they're going to try to kill you. And they're going to do this in my name, thinking that they are doing service for me. If this were a halftime pep talk, why would you even think of stepping out onto the field or the court for the second half? Jesus has just told you the world hates you and is going to try to kill you. Now, I like safety just as much as anybody else. And I like comfort, too. I think I would be fine with calling it quits right there and say, Oh, God, Jesus... That's a little bit extreme. Surely you don't mean this. Can't I just continue to fly under the radar? And if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, that's probably exactly what these disciples would do, too. And if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, this is what you and I would be comfortable doing. And this is where the Holy Spirit, again, becomes so crucial for each one of us. What is it that the Holy Spirit does? He testifies of Christ. The Holy Spirit comforts these frightened and terrified disciples by pointing them again to the one true truth, pointing them again to Jesus. He continues to point to them what Jesus was going to do, what Jesus has done, convicting them of their sin, convicting them of Christ's righteousness, and convicting them of the judgment that was and is to come. Convicting these disciples that apart from the grace of God, that they too would be just like the world. That they too would be lost. That they too would be on their way to destruction. But the Spirit calls them by the gospel to believe in Christ's finished work. And he comforts them. He counsels them. He helps them to see what Jesus Christ has done and that his work is finished, that their sins are paid for, and that Christ has come to set them free. 
that Christ has come to give them life. The Spirit makes known the grace of God that appeared in Christ Jesus, bringing salvation. And that Spirit made known the grace of God for each one of these disciples through the finished work of Christ. And the Spirit makes known to you this same grace. Spiritship wrote that it is this grace, this grace of God that impels one to witness to grace, to share this grace with those around us. Grace gives us assurance that all poor sinners can be saved, since the chief of sinners, you and I, have been saved and have experienced this blessing. Grace imparts desire and longing for the salvation of all people so that they may have the same blessed experience. This is what God's grace does in our life. And this is what the Spirit testifies to, points us to God's grace in Christ Jesus over and over and over again, comforting us in the Christ and the God who is there with us continually and in his finished work. In other words, when you realize the grace that God has extended toward you, you desire to extend that, extend that same grace toward others, even when they treat you like an outcast, and yes, even when they try to kill you and silence the message of Jesus. The more fervently the world pushed back against these disciples and against believers, the more fervently they proclaimed the power of God to save the lost, the more fervently they shared the gospel, desiring that the Spirit would save these poor sinners through making Christ known, would save them from the destruction that they don't even know they're heading to. These words that Jesus tells his disciples, being excommunicated from the synagogue and hunted down, would frighten any rational person from boldly declaring this unwelcomed message that the Holy Spirit would comfort them with the truth, would again testify to them what Christ has done for them, and would lead them to testify also what Christ has done for others. The Holy Spirit would again testify of Jesus and continue to remind these disciples of what he has done for them. He would lead these disciples to boldly declare Jesus Christ and him crucified. He would do this with every martyr. He would do this with every believer. The same Holy Spirit that continues to comfort and help believers as he testifies of Christ. And this is what he is doing today through his word in you and through you. He reminds us that though we once didn't know God, that we are loved by the Father. That though Jesus died to forgive sin, that he rose again to give us new life. And in a world that continues to blur and deny truth, the Spirit tells us of the way, the truth, and the life. This is what the Spirit does. And as he does this in your life, may he comfort you, may he strengthen you and sustain you. And may he cause you also to testify of this work to the world and the lost sinners and those around you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you that you have not left us to ourselves. We thank you for sending us Christ, your Son, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord. Jesus, we thank you for going back to the Father as well and for sending your Holy Spirit to us to testify of the truth, to lead us into all truth, to guide us, to comfort us, to strengthen us as well. We pray, Lord, that you would do this through your word today and each and every day of our lives, that you would strengthen us and comfort us 
as we look around us in this world, as we fear and tremble what the world desires to do to us, strengthen us and encourage us and make us bold to testify of what you have done for sinners all around the world, what you have done for this world in which we live in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.